1: When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 508- Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 25th, 2012. Okay, yes. No. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there by people who are very prominent. And just because somebody has a large church, doesn't mean that that automatically means they're telling you the truth. It may be that the reason why they have a large church is because they've been guilty of doing what the apostle Paul would predicted would take place in the last times. Um, scratch itching ears. Paul the apostle, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, warned us that in the last days uh, there would be times perilous times when people would not endure sound doctrine. Instead, would gather to themselves teachers who would tell them what their itching ears want to hear, and well, if that's happening, that's bad, not good. Um, you know, a, a prime example of that would be well, somebody like Joel Osteen, who we'll be talking about today, and um, his gospel isn't the biblical gospel. the uh, The message he preaches has nothing whatsoever. It's not in. It's not congruous. It, well, it's what's incongruous. Yeah, it, it, does, does, it doesn't square <laughs> with what the Bible teaches when you read it in context, the message that's given to the church to proclaim. So uh, Joel Osteen is somebody who's in rebellion to the word of God. And the problem is, is that because he's so successful, there's a, there's a lot of folks out there who want his opinion. Well, I mean, if he's successful, I mean, he must represent the mainstream of Christianity, Well, he may represent the mainstream of, well, a sectarian, Americanized version of Christianity that on several major doctrines it's questionable as to whether or not it's even Christianity, he may be popular, he may be successful, but that doesn't mean that what he's saying is true, and it doesn't mean that what he's saying actually squares with Scripture, or it is what the message is. See, in the United States, We consider success to be the ultimate sign as to whether or not, at least in the church, God is blessing somebody's ministry. Well, that's not always the case now, is it? Um, if numerical success was well the indicator as to whether or not you could tell if something is true or not, then we'd have to come to the conclusion: Well, Islam's got to be true because I mean it's growing like crazy. There's two billion Muslims running around the p- planet. They've experienced some numerical success to the point where what a third of the planet, uh, you know, is registered among the ranks of Muslims. Well, does that mean that God has blessed Islam? Well, by no means. That doesn't tell us whether something is true. And conversely also, just because there's not a lot of people attending a particular church doesn't mean that the pastor is not successful. Again, I've, I've pointed out that you always have to look at what's the standard that we're, we're judging by. If we judge by earthly standards, then, well, we have no choice but to say the most successful pastors out there with the biggest churches are truly the ones who are blessed by God. But God has a different way of reckoning these things. And so, in fact, it's contrary to God's Word, contrary to what He's revealed, for us to judge by mere outward numerical uh, appearances, if you would. I mean, for instance, I I attend a church. I'm a member at a church. I teach at the church. And, uh, you know, that being the case, I mean, wouldn't you like to know about our numerical success um i don't count <laughs> i i can tell you this um the church that i attend we've got less than than a couple hundred people that show up on any given sunday does that mean that our pastor is not successful does that mean that the church that i attend is 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 stuck in abject failure not at all how well how do i know because sunday after sunday my pastor opens up the word, and he rightly handles it. Sunday after Sunday, my pastor opens up the word, and he preaches Christ from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and not just any old Christ, the biblical Jesus, the one who was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, the the God who became man, who was crucified for our sins under Pontius Pilate, was buried and raised again on the third day for our justification. He preaches that Jesus, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And wouldn't you know it? Sinners, like me, are brought to repentance. Sinners, like me, despair of their own self-righteousness. Sinners, like me, are pointed to and put their faith and trust in the one true God, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, you know, for our sins and for our justification. So is my pastor a failure? Because, well, truth be told, we don't have any volunteers working in our parking lot. None, none whatsoever. We don't have people having to wear those orange safety outfits or to, you know, have, have flashlights. We don't have cones set up. You come in, you grab a space, you park your car, you you know you turn it off, and you walk into church, and you find an empty seat. There's nobody out there. You know, you know we don't have doors that close. You know when the show is going on. Um, there's there's well there's infants in the ch- congregation. There's young kids. Some of them you know have, you know they let their voices be heard in the echoey cavernous traditional building that we have. We've got elderly people, and some of them walking in canes. We've got a guy in in a, a motorized wheelchair. I mean, you know, so we've got a whole spectrum of all kinds of people, and you know, and we all gather Sunday after Sunday to hear our pastor feed us with the Word of God, and to feed us the Lord's Supper Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Does that mean that we're failures because we're not growing because we don't have a big vision to change the world um, my you know if you were to ask my pastor, "Hey, have you considered multi-site?" he he probably would look at you and go, "A what? I don't even know what you're talking about. So does that mean that he's a failure that all of the you know the Christians that, that we're all selfish. Because we're showing up to hear God's word and we haven't cast a vision to change the world? Not at all. Because we know how to read the scripture. The job of a pastor is to preach the word in season and out of season. That means that there's going to be times when to preach the word, to open up the Bible and to preach it in context, to preach the full counsel of the word of God to preach Christ and Him crucified from every passage of Scripture. There's going to be times in church history when that message falls from vogue. It's going to seem out of step with the greater church culture. But the job of a pastor is to preach the Word in season, out of season. Study, show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handles, rightly divides the Word of Truth doesn't He doesn't play any games, and whatever the assigned text is for that particular Sunday, he studies to make sure he understands the text properly, make sure that he doesn't deceive us by well accidentally misinterpreting the passage and coming up with the wrong conclusion teach you know he doesn't want to teach us something contrary to what God intended us for us to understand from those passages. I mean, he just plods along Sunday after Sunday, and after you know, after the uh, the main service, well, you know what he does? He teaches Sunday school. A bunch of people, you know, with coffee that isn't designer coffee. Well, we have one of those old school, you know, coffee pots, and you know, and as far as baked goods are concerned, you know, we don't have we don't bring in cookies or anything like that from any of the local, uh, you know, vendors, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or Molly's cookies or famous Amos. They none of that stuff shows up. We got some folks in our congregation who love to bake. So Sunday after Sunday we get well baked goods like homemade brownies, cookies, cupcakes, all that stuff. And you know, it's obviously homemade, you know, you know, and and you know what we do? We grab a cookie or two, a napkin, grab ourselves a cup of you know of coffee that isn't even designer coffee and we sit down and we listen as our pastor opens up the bible and continues to teach us from his word no games you know what the topic you know from sunday after sunday is whatever the 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 passage is teaching so as we work our way through scripture you know Believe it or not, there's topics where my pastor, will he'll talk about marriage. It's true. He'll talk about things like, well, work and vocation. It's true. He'll talk about, about child rearing. Absolutely true. But it's always done in context. As we're working our way through Scripture, when those topics come up, it's done in context. He doesn't try to strip, mind the Bible to find particular passages to fit a particular topic of relevance, and he rightly handles God's word, understanding the proper distinction of law and gospel. It's rather predictable. It doesn't sound like anything that's, well, glamorous or spectacular. Um, In fact, truth be told, um, we could conduct our church service um, if the electricity went off. It's absolutely true. We don't have a fancy light show. Um, There's not a smoke machine on the property. Instead, just a humble, faithful pastor. Doing what God's word has told him to do. Dispensing the, um, the duties of the office that he holds. Preaching God's word. Preaching the law to rattle the cages of confident sinners preaching the gospel to those broken by God's law who've come to despair of their own self-righteousness. It's humble. I don't think he'll ever make it in the newspaper. In fact, um, no one ever comes to him for advice on... How to grow a megachurch. Yeah, he'll never be invited to the Catalyst Conference or the Exponential Conference. He'll probably never be approached by any of the major publishing houses to write a book. And you know what? He's the most successful pastor on the planet. Because he's doing exactly what God has commanded him to do in his word. Is he successful by the world's standards? Not at all. But according to what God has ordered him to do, yeah, he's extremely successful. Probably one of the best in the world. And yet no one will ever notice. Because the world isn't looking for that. They're looking for glory, for fame, for big numbers, to be recognized by everybody as successful. This guy, he just wants to preach Jesus and to preach his word and to rightly handle it. And he's careful. He's studious, hardworking, humble. <laughs> it's a big difference, isn't there? Anyway... Enough of the monologue. Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Like I said, we do have an update from Joel Osteen. We're going to get to that today. Uh, He's made some comments regarding, well, Mormonism. It just gets worse. I mean, (laughs) you know, with uh, friends like Joel Osteen, who needs enemies? We'll be uh, taking a look at what he said on CNN regarding Mormonism. got a strange story from the Christian Post regarding um, the... um, Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez. Um, we <laughs> just a strange story, and uh, we're gonna get to that. And then we're gonna also today we're gonna start to uh pick apart. Um, it, we'll do part one of this today. I have no idea how many days it'll be in the series, but we're gonna uh. Tony Jones of the uh, Emergent Church, the the Emergent Church, the, the, they're not dead yet. They've got the band back together and they're starting to become prolific again. He's recently uh, published a, a kind of a self-published work, uh, you know, regarding the atonement, basically making the claim that the idea of total depravity is a totally depraved doctrine. And he recently uh, gave uh, delivered a chapel sermon um, at uh, Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and so we're going to be. Uh, we're going to start today to begin to unpack the things that he said there. You're not going to want to miss it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to head on down to uh, uh, to Missouri and uh, to North Point Church. And uh, we're going to be listening to one of the associate pastors there. His name is John Cremeans. He is the brother of Buddy Cremeans. If you've listened to Fighting for the Faith, then you know that we've reviewed sermons by Buddy Cremeans in the past. Here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. But t- his brother John serves on staff out there with Tommy Sparger. And boy, you got, you know, if, if I had a dollar for every Nehemiah sermon that I heard, where a secret driven guy claimed that somehow it teaches, you know, the importance of leadership. Um, you know i 'd be a very wealthy guy, but uh John does the same thing but i 'm going to actually kind of deconstruct it for you so you can kind of understand why a message like this is being preached. This is a standard seeker driven type of of sermon uh, misapplication and misreading i totally missing the whole point of the book of nehemiah but i 'm going to explain to you why uh seeker driven guys obsess with this book and what 's going on there, so uh, that 's going to be an hour number two so You know, we got a lot of ground to cover, not, well, not a huge pile to cover, but uh, make yourself at home, and uh, what we'll do is we'll start off with the Hugo Chavez story here. (laughs) Weird one. From the Christian Post, the uh, headline reads, Hugo Chavez claims pact with Jesus will heal his cancer. I, I, I'm telling you, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, was he getting spiritual advice from the Catholic version of Patricia King? Anyway, uh, this is written by Stoyan Zymov. That's an interesting name. Uh, he's a Christian Post reporter. And uh, Stoyan writes, he says, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, who was diagnosed with cancer last June, has said in a recent broadcast that he believes he has made a pact with Jesus Christ and that he will heal him of his condition. (laughs) I had no idea what Jesus was out there making pacts with cancer patients. Anyway, while the specific type of cancer Chavez had is unknown, the South American leader has been receiving radiation therapy in Cuba, Havana, and made it clear he is relying on Jesus to protect him during the process. Quote, It's like a pact with Christ who didn't die. He rose again. He certainly will intervene to make this treatment. I am rigorously following a supreme success. And so I can continue redoubling my effort looking toward the future. Chavez expressed in a 15 minute recording for IOL news. Um, (laughs) Jesus didn't die, he rose again. Well, if he didn't die, then how did he rise again? The details of the Jesus that Hugo Chavez believes in are sketchy. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not sure exactly which Jesus he believes in. But, you know, as I hear the details here, I'm going, what? Who is this Jesus he believes in? I'm not familiar with this guy. Quote, for those who feed rumors and have bad intentions toward me, I forgive them. But I have great faith in this hard work that we are doing against this disease that ambushed me last year, and I have great faith in Christ to continue living more and more each day. Chavez continued as he held a crucifix. Early in April, the Venezuelan president shared in a pre-Easter message with the public that life has been a hurricane, but that today I have more faith than yesterday. In an emotional plea in which he openly wept in front of a state television camera, Uh, Chavez prayed and directly asked Jesus to let him live. Quote, Give me your crown, Jesus. Give me your cross, your thorn, so that I may bleed. But give me life, because I have more to do for this country, and these people do not take me yet, Chavez expressed, standing below a statue of Jesus on the cross. Again, I am not... This Jesus sounds a little foreign, somewhat alien to me. Um... Yeah, so he prayed to Jesus, "Give me your crown, give me your cross, your thorns, so that I might bleed. But give me life, because I have more to do for this country." You know, it makes me wonder if there's other Christians in the in the country there in Venezuela, in Venezuela, who are seeing if they can make a, a counteroffer to Jesus, uh, whoever this Jesus is, um, because I mean, you know as communist dictators go hugo chavez is a bit of a tyrant and so it just makes me wonder if you know if the folks there in venezuela feel betrayed by this particular jesus that somehow he was willing to make a pact with hugo chavez to keep him alive it makes me wonder if they're not willing to offer jesus you know a counter offer uh to uh to you know basically let the cancer run its course and uh and do what it will with um hugo chavez again i'm not sure who this jesus is but anyway Uh, The Christian Post report continues, Chavez, who has served in office since 1999, is facing re-election in October as he hopes to win another term, although critics doubt his expressions of faith are genuine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, if they're genuine, I'm not sure which Jesus he actually has faith in. They may be genuine, but uh, the Jesus he believes in probably isn't. Anyway, or... (laughs) So uh, doubt that his expressions of faith are genuine. There are some in Venezuela who doubt the president is genuine in his Christianity or that he has worked for the good of the people. A letter from retired Bishop Eduardo uh, Herrera Riera of Carora, who is offering, who is suffering from terminal cancer, was made public last week and criticized Chavez for the way he has handled the country and a number of issues. Quote: Moreover, there is uh, uh, there is another evil, Mr. President, which. You have brought upon the country your inexplicable preaching of hatred and violence that has brought to all the cities of our country a painful river of blood that flows daily from our streets, the letter states. Yeah, see, this isn't sound, I mean, it makes me wonder, you know, if Hugo Chavez made a pact with Jesus, what what was his end of the bargain? You know, (laughs) I mean, it's just, I'm a little concerned here. Anyway, quote, unfortunately, you have been very weak and negligent in confronting the most serious of problems. If you don't step up to solve this terrible evil with decisiveness and courage, God will hold you accountable for your negligence. The letter continues. Yeah, it makes me think that uh, this um, uh Bishop Eduardo Hera Riera of Carora uh, might have a point there, you know. Um so yeah, you know, again, I'm I'm not sure which Jesus Hugo Chavez believes in. Um the the details sound a little sketchy and somewhat non-biblical. Furthermore, um again, my question is I'd like to see the details of his end of the pact that he made with Jesus. I just find it odd that the biblical Jesus would make a pact with a um well a tyrant thug uh communist dictator. Um yeah, just and yeah, you know, I you know again I, I'd like to see what the details are of his end of that pact. Okay, moving along.
2: Feeling lonely, sad as I can be All by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea What makes me happy
3: Fills me up
1: with glee. Those bones in my jaw don't have a flaw My shiny teeth and me My shiny teeth that twinkle Just like the stars in space My shiny teeth that sparkle
4: Shiny teeth that turn just like a Christmas tree. You know the walk of miles
1: just to see me smile. smile. Shiny teeth and me. Shiny teeth, shiny teeth.
0: Yes, they're all so perfect. <laughs> Alright, let's go for so number two. Rush gargle, rinse a couple breads, mince my shiny teeth and me.
1: Yeah, that means we're doing a Joel Osteen update. (laughs) Oh, that song cracks me up. Anyway, (laughs) all right, so uh, the Christian Post has covered this. Uh, The Do Not Surprise blog has the video if you'd like to see it. Uh, This is just, oh, man. Um, so, yeah, let me read the, just a little bit of the Christian post. This is written by Paul Stanley. The headline reads, Joel Osteen, Mormon Romney is Christian. Obama is too. Jo- oh, man. Joel Osteen, the popular megachurch pastor from Houston, appeared Tuesday afternoon on CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and said that he considers both presumed GOP presidential nominee Mitt Romney, a Mormon, and President Obama to be Christians. Osteen, when asked about Romney's faith, said that former Massachusetts governor is indeed a Christian, which is similar a similar statement as, uh, to the one that he made in January. Quote, when I hear Mitt Romney say that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Christ raised from the dead, he's our Savior, that's good enough for me. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, with friends like Joel Osteen, who needs enemies? So if you would like to hear the <clears throat> the, <laughs> the statements in question... Here is audio from uh, Joel Osteen's interview with Wolf Blitzer from the uh,
5: Situation Room. Here we go. Osteen is here in the Situation Room. Good to have you here in the Situation Room. Thanks very much for coming in. My pleasure, Wolf. Thanks for having me. You know, so many people are inspired by you. They're moved by you. And I know your congregants, they come to you with questions. Here's a hypothetical question. It may have happened, but you give me an answer. Uh, A member of your congregation comes to you and says, Joel... I really want to vote for Romney, but I'm concerned because he's a Mormon. I'm not sure he's a Christian. What do you say to that congregant? Well, my personal view is, Wolf, is that when I hear Mitt Romney say that... It...
1: Now, that, that I'm glad he was honest there. My personal view, this is not what the Bible teaches. This is Joe Lowstin's personal view. That's not, well, it's not, he it can't be squared with scripture, but this is his personal view. So, you know.
0: He believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that yeah, he's the yeah. Christ raised from the dead, that he's his Savior. That's good enough for me, and I would encourage that.
1: Yeah, the details of how you define Jesus Christ, um, how you define the term Son of God, uh, how you define Savior, none of those terms are defined properly by Mormonism. But don't worry, Joel Osteen isn't going to you know he's not a stickler for details he's not a stickler for definitions america's most popular mega church pastor said hey listen he believes in jesus that's good enough for me you know the sad thing is is that that wasn't good enough for the apostle paul yeah if you have your bible flip on over to uh well second uh, corinthians second corinthians chapter 11 second corinthians chapter 11 i would like to read to you something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the folks over there in Corinth, that the church there. Um, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. This is going to sound like foolishness for sure. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning and uh, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, well, you put up with it readily enough. See, Paul here in 2 Corinthians 11 was actually rebuking the Corinthian church for tolerating and listening to and accepting teachers who were bringing a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. Yeah, so, um, in fact, this is not a good thing. In fact, to kind of fill out the uh, the rest of the teaching here, the Apostle Paul also, in his letter to the churches in Galatia, w- you know, war- warns them about those who would bring a, f- a different gospel or a-, a gospel other than the one he preached. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, this is Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, that would be including the angel Moroni, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you preached, let him be damned, accursed, uh, anathema. And as we've said before, so now I say again if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be damned. So uh, the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was not one who tolerated, uh, gave a pass to, um, glossed over people who were bringing, who were teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, or a different spirit. In fact, he pronounced. Damnations on them, anathemas, if you would. And so here's the deal. Uh, Here, Joel Osteen, despite the fact that Mormonism teaches a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel, okay, keep in mind what the Mormons have done is they've taken the word Jesus Christ, the two words Jesus Christ, and they've poured out the biblical meaning of the term Jesus Christ and poured into it a different meaning. It still says Jesus, but the definitions changed. The, the Mormons took the word gospel, they poured out the biblical meaning, and they poured into it their own meaning. So they used the word gospel, but it's not the same gospel. It's a different gospel. But, you know, Joel Osteen, <laughs> listen, listen, they, they'd say they believe in Jesus. That's good enough for him, but it wasn't good enough for the Apostle Paul. So it makes you wonder, um, What is it that qualifies Joel Osteen to be a pastor at all in the Christian church if he's so obtuse in his understanding of Scripture that he can't see and realize, wait a second, those Mormons don't actually believe in the biblical Jesus because they believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. That's not the biblical Jesus. That's a different Jesus. But he continues. In the same way is,
0: you know what? We don't all have the same views. And I realize Mormonism is not traditional Christianity. But No,
1: it's not biblical Christianity.
0: I'm probably a little broader and more open in the fact that when somebody loves Jesus and believes they're the son of God, that's good for me. Because that November of (laughs)
5: 2011...
1: Makes me want, you know. Hey, you know, I think what we could do is we can invite Mitt Romney and Joe Osteen to Elephant Room Three. What do you think?
5: In Pew poll: Thirty-two percent say they don't believe the Mormon faith is a Christian religion. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. But what I hear you saying is you do believe it's a Christian religion, sort of. Well, I, d- I do. I, th- I believe there there are.
0: Things that are the same, but they're you know obviously there's if you get deeper into it there's things that's not traditional Christianity.
1: No, biblical. It's not that it's traditional Christianity. It's not. It's not biblical. They teach a different Jesus, a different gospel, and they have a different spirit. It's it. It's not that it doesn't line up with traditional Christianity. It doesn't line up with biblical Christianity.
0: But I'm looking at more of the broadness. Oh yeah. Of when somebody believes that Jesus is their savior and the son of god to doesn't me. matter who your jesus is me that believe I, I believe they're a believer in christ
5: yeah and so when there are some uh, protests from liberty university now you have school you're familiar with sure. jerry falwell the way jerry falwell's uh, university uh, he's going to be giving the commencement address there the graduation address Mitt romney at liberty university some are saying maybe that's not appropriate what do you think
0: Well, to me, it would be appropriate. Now, everybody has a right to have their own views. Obviously, some people... Not in the kingdom of
1: God, they don't. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus doesn't run the kingdom of God via opinion polls. Hey, who do you think I am today, you know? (laughs) No, Christian doctrine is the same. God doesn't change. The message that we've been given to deliver, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, you don't have a right to your own opinion in in the kingdom of God. Biblical pastors are called to proclaim what God has revealed, and their opinions are to be missing from biblical preaching. They're to preach the word of God, not man's opinions.
0: I feel stronger than I do, but again... I'm trying to reach the biggest, broadest group, and
1: yeah, huh? That's right. So, in order to reach the biggest, broadest group, we've got to, well, shave some, you know, corners off of the, you know, the rough edges of Christianity, so that it can appeal to the largest number of people. That means we're just not going to quibble about the hard lines that the Bible has drawn.
0: And uh, you know, I, my net may be a little bit wider when I see somebody.
1: Yeah, it's not a net, dude. It's it's heresy
0: that that loves the Lord. I try not to exclude them, but to rather include them, and to
1: try not to exclude exclude them, but include them. The apostle Paul excluded them. By definition, he's excluded the Mormons because they teach a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. And Paul said, "If anyone teaches a different gospel, let him be damned." Um, mm, I just don't think that Joel Osteen quite has the authority to include somebody that that well the apostle Paul writing under the influence of the holy spirit has excluded
0: realize that we all have differences you know what we could look at our faith versus the catholic faith or some other right <laughs>
1: we can
0: and do you think there's problems there there are faith mormonism's a little bit
5: different but i still see them as brothers in christ so i see what i what i see is oh man saying is that you're a big tent christian i really am i don't really
1: Big tent Christianity, by the way, that's one of the catchphrases of the emergent church movement. I, Joel Osteen, you know, I, I think he'd be right at home with Brian McLaren. I
0: don't want to, don't want to push people away. I mean, there's, we could take the scripture and ask ten people that are all. the same denomination you get 10 different views so So
1: that means the bible means nothing see it doesn't mean anything because we get 10 different views that means that well well, what it says we don't know there's no way of knowing so just stop quibbling about things
0: i just i'd rather be inclusive and say you know what if they believe in christ they're my brother they're my sister another Mm kind
1: so there you go uh by the way <laughs> this broad Christianity, I think this would qualify as the definition. Um, this is the broad road that leads to destruction rather than the narrow path that leads to life that Jesus was talking about. Sorry, again, if somebody asks you, Are Mormons Christians? the answer is no, not at all, because they teach a different Jesus, a different gospel. In a different spirit. We're to call Mormons to repentance of their heresies, their false doctrine, their false Jesus, their idols, their f- everything that's false, and call them to repent and be forgiven of their heresies, and to trust in the one true crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity, the only God that exists, not one God among many gods, who was once a man and became a god. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, like I said, with with friends like Joel Osteen, yeah, who needs enemies? You know. So there we go. I mean, it just is getting worse out there. And by the way, you know, listen, um, if you want to vote for a Mormon, there's no, there's no sin in that. Uh, the, Martin Luther said he would rather be ruled by a smart Turk that would be a Muslim than a dumb. Christians. So I just don't see uh that being the election issue at this point. You know, the question is who's going to make the better president regardless of his or her well, his profession regarding religion? I think that's the way we're gonna have to approach that this particular election cycle. So, you know, but you don't sell Christianity down the road like Joel Osteen did um, just now. Um, that doesn't actually help forward the kingdom of God nor bring sinners to repentance and faith and trust in the one true crucified and risen Savior. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook dot com forward slash pirate you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at a Christian. We'll be right back.
2: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. <laughs>
4: Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your
5: false doctrine now. <laughs> it's.
4: Monty Python's Flying Circus Church!
6: Build-a-God, how can I help you? Hello, I received a -a Build-a-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their God.
1: Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap o Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap o Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional ten dollars off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listen, it doesn't do anybody any good. It can't save you. A false Jesus is just powerless to save. Uh, Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and thank you for your support. Moving along here. These are the sounds. The emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra playing their rendir- rendition of Strauss's Thus Sprach Zarathustra. This is a tour de force homage to the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche, who helped bring us. Postmodernism in its earliest days and form. Set free from the slave morality of modernist, highly defined notes, the postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra just lets the spirit guide them. As they experience this composition, in conversation, within community, there we go. All right, all of that is in honor of the fact that we were, we will begin today to listen to and <clears throat> deconstruct um, the well, Tony Jones's claim that he's concocted, he has discovered using his postmodern acumen. And his recently acquired doctorate um that he is now capable of finding a better atonement. <laughs> it's like you know okay, it's so funny because <laughs> I remember back in the day when those emergent guys were trying to well uh, well not exactly answer questions directly that they they didn't want to put out you know their own meta narrative and and wouldn't answer doctrinal questions directly you know they they were being a little bit more well. Obtuse and and even in his book, The New Christians, you know Tony Jones explained why he didn't need to have a doctrinal statement. But now, you know, he's discovered a better atonement using the uh, emergent version of the humble hermeneutic. He has come up with an inauthentic, um, <laughs> highly contrived uh, concoction of his own mental mental state. Uh, in it's called the better atonement, and he was recently invited to Baylor University to uh, teach on this so-called better atonement that he's discovered. So we're going to begin today to break this up into pieces and start to figure out what on earth Tony Jones is talking about and see if it squares with what God's Word teaches in context. Uh, here, here, here's somebody from Baylor University to introduce Tony Jones.
4: Let's pray this morning, and then I'll introduce you to today's speaker. God, here we are. We wait for you. We know that you're here. So slow us down and let us recognize you.
1: So, this is the opening prayer. God, we know you're here. Slow us down. I'm um, okay.
4: Amen. Several years ago, I came across Tony Jones when I read this book called The Sacred Way, and it was this idea that spiritual practice. Um, can really help us in living a life that is oriented toward Christ. And so as as I read that, I thought, you know, we, we really should bring this guy to Baylor. And so we did. And he came to chapel and he's been one of those speakers that we've had back time after time after time, because he takes theology and this idea of understanding God and he puts it in, in a place that we can really understand it and think about it and look at it and investigate it. And he's
1: really, I thought Tony Jones's project was deconstructing historic Christian orthodoxy and coming up with his own Christianity.
4: Just done that once again in a new book called A Better Atonement. Better Atonement. Uh, one of the things that I, yeah, The Atonement, new and improved. I, I love about Tony is that he's also a social media connoisseur a social media expert so when he puts out a book um it's a book that i can always just download right here on the ipad really fast and easy or or on your computer or any link that's right easily
1: accessible heresy and he, see that's the you know that's the key i mean if you're if you have orthodoxy and it's hard to get to and you can't download it onto an ipad well you can, somebody like tony jones is, comes along and he makes heresy extremely easy to get to on your ipad
4: kind of reader that you have um so he's he's the kind of guy who will put books in a format that's easy for you to read and you can read them pretty quickly there's his newest book right there beyond the depraved doctrine of original sin and
1: beyond the depraved doctrine of original sin so yeah there we go i mean Original sin, well, that's depraved. Not that humans are depraved, but the the doctrine itself is depraved. I've read his book, by the way. I know his argument. It's a, it's not, it's a pretty short little ebook. Um, And boy, does he engage in some interesting uh, theologizing. That's all I'll say at the moment.
4: I know that even when you read the subtitle, you think, really, that's some thick theology there. Uh, but he-
1: <laughs> No, that's not what I say. That's some thick heresy there.
4: Puts it in a way that you're really going to understand it, and so I'm going to.
1: Great, easy to understand, easy to access. Harris, stop
4: talking so that you can hear him just a little bit and hear how he explains these things. It's exciting for me, once again, to welcome Tony back to Baylor. He lives in Minnesota, and he has three kids, and uh, he's he's at Solomon's Porch there as a theologian in residence, but he also is teaching at Fuller Theological Seminary out in Pasadena. Lovely, affecting the next generation of future heretics. And so, I hope that you will listen attentively, so attentively. Sorry. Welcome with me to Baylor Chapel, Tony Jones.
2: That's excellent. Right, <laughs> hey, the Baylor Bookworms. Is that sure? Your... Oh no! Did you know, like in 1914, that when the Baylor Bear, uh, like, was voted on as the mascot by the student body, that one of the other options was the Baylor Bookworms. Have you heard that before? Now your life is just a little bit better. <laughs> Thanks to me. It's Lent, all you Baylor Baptist bears. you know what Lent is? Some of you know what Lent is. Lent is a period in the calendar, the church calendar, as opposed to the, like, academic calendar or other kinds of calendars. It's a period in the church calendar in which we prepare ourselves For Good Friday and for Easter. It's 40 days long. You don't count Sundays because in churchy language, every Sunday is a little Easter. So Lent is the 40 days that start on Ash Wednesday and culminate with Good Friday. You may recall that 40 is an important number in the Bible. 40 is the number of days that Jesus was in the wilderness, right, at the beginning of his public ministry. So it's a time of year when a lot of us think about things like Jesus' crucifixion, what happened on the cross, what happened at the Last Supper, what do all those events that we will commemorate a week and a half from now, during Holy Week, what do they all mean? A week from yesterday, next Sunday, we'll have Palm Sunday, and that will be a commemoration of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, followed by Holy Week, in which we commemorate all those things like the Last Supper and Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus being arrested and Jesus being crucified. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection. I bet that my journey of understanding or or coming to terms with the cross is somewhat similar to some of yours. In that, I invited Jesus into my heart when I was like 11 years old. It was at church camp. Some of you had a similar kind of thing where what happens at church camp, and I was a youth pastor, so I'm going to kind of like let you behind the curtain. Here's what happens at church camp for kids. What you do is you get kids really, really exhausted all week long, right? They just get super tired, so they're like they're a little 11-year-old zombies. And then you make sure to remind them on the last couple of days that camp is almost over and they need to go use all their money in the canteen, so they buy out all the pixie sticks, and they're just like mainlining sugar, right, straight from those pixie sticks, which when I was a kid, they were like this long, and now they're like two feet long, full of colored sugar. And they just mainline pixie sticks. They're super tired. And then they start to realize that today's the last day of camp and everybody's real weepy and sad because tomorrow they have to go home and they're going to miss their best friends from camp and everything. And it's that night that you give what we youth pastors call the talk. And then what we also call, like in council meeting, we would say, so tonight is cry night and it's the night when we tell all the kids about Jesus. And like kids are very receptive to the gospel on the last night of camp for multiple reasons. And it was at a night just like that, the summer before fifth grade, that the children's pastor at our church up at summer camp gave the talk, the talk, about how Jesus was arrested and he was whipped 39 times and they put a crown of thorns on him and he was bleeding and she explained in like, explicit detail what it's like to have a spike go through your wrist and oh my gosh i was just bawling by the end of it right of course i invited jesus into my heart as my personal lord and savior that's what i did i went forward you know a counselor prayed for me and i accepted jesus it was great and then the next summer it was so great well i did it again i accepted jesus again and again and again this is what we do right
1: now what he's describing here is the type of Well, it's a type of emotional manipulation that takes place at many Christian camps. I'm not defending that. In fact, he's kind of right to take a swipe at it.
2: And that's what we do. It's how a lot of us are introduced to the cross and to Jesus dying for our sins. We're told this a lot. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And when you're 11, you're like, that is so awesome. I don't really understand what sins are exactly and I don't really know how, but whatever, I love it. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And then at some point, maybe when you were in high school, maybe now when you're at college, you think, but, I get why Jesus died. But I don't really understand how. How did Jesus' death on the cross take care of my sin? By what mechanism? Was my sin erased? How is my forgiveness accomplished by the death of a person named Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago? How does that work? Well, if you've ever asked that question, you are one in a long line of human beings who've asked that question. Of course, as you might imagine, For 2,000 years in the history of the church, people have wanted to figure out what exactly happened. How does it work? And so people have come up with different understandings of this doctrine called the atonement. That's the theological lingo for this area of theology. It's called the atonement. How does Jesus' death atone For my sin, and for your sin, and for all of humanity's sin. Well, for the first thousand years of the church, there was a particular...
1: Sorry, um, that's... Here's the deal. You can't go to church history first. Yeah, see, this is a problem. This is a problem. If you're going to answer the question, the primary source for Christian theology is God's Word. Secondarily, you can look at church history and what people throughout the history of the church have stated regarding this to see what they taught, how did they understand the Scripture, but you don't start here. Okay, I would contend at this point that there's a reason why Tony Jones is beginning here, because this is the tactic that's used when it comes to what's called deconstruction, okay? Well, you know, if we look at church history, I mean, in different periods, different periods emphasize different atonement theories, and there's all these theories out there, you know, and I mean... (laughs) So the idea here is that you know you show all of the discontinuity supposedly that exists between all these different theories as if one is exclusively taught against another and uh, And so the idea then is, is that, well, you know, nobody agrees, so you know, at the end of the day, don't know. I mean, you know it's you know the atonement theory is, you know, pick one, you know, and there's there's good tradition to back it all up. That's not how you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to argue biblical anthropology using the Bible. In fact, that's what's really at the heart of the concept of sola scriptura. If we're going to do this as Christians, you need to open up the biblical texts and look at what they say.
2: particular version of the atonement that was the most... Uh, most highly embraced and most understood by people. Actually, it has two names and they're very much related. In these understandings of the atonement, the problem is Satan. And the atonement fixes that problem. Problem is Satan. Solution is Jesus' death on a cross. The names for these are the ransom-captive understanding of the atonement, which is an understanding of the atonement that says Satan, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, Satan took humanity captive. Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, from the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And because they made a deal with the devil in the form of the serpent, now the devil takes humanity captive. The devil controls humanity. Until God, in the person of his son, Jesus, pays a ransom in a negotiated bargain with the devil and the devil releases humanity on the basis of the ransom in the person of Jesus.
1: Okay, now here's the problem. He's basically summarizing the ransom captive theory with the details without without any biblical text. And the way he's described it, I would immediately take issue with it based upon a biblical text and for instance if you really want to kind of get down to this jesus tells a parable that gives us some kind of a picture here of ransom captive at least it gives us at least a pic, a picture into if you were to hold to this concept of the atonement okay and you know understand that there's redemption language in scripture that talks about us being sold as slaves to sin so you got the slavery redemption concept ransom captive going on here but let me point out to you biblically if you're really going to go along these lines you're going to need a good grounding in this and um let me give you the uh, the, the the relevant passage Matthew chapter 18 I'll start at verse 23 Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. You, you know, i as I've taught this before, you might as well just say that's a bazillion dollars. I mean, there's no way a human being is capable of racking up a debt like this, let alone paying it off. At least, I mean, it's such an outrageous figure. I mean, there's nations that don't even have this as their gross national product. Anyway, so he, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Okay? Now, I'm going to point something out. He's being sold into slavery, And more importantly, it's actually, the concept is debtor's prison. Okay? It's debtor's prison. Well, I'll explain here as we keep going. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe me. That's about a month's wages. And so the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. This is debtor's prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him him and said to him you wicked servant i forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as i have had mercy and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so the idea is this is that you're you're going to look hard and long and it's going to be a fruitless endeavor to find a passage in the bible that teaches that we were sold property wise to satan okay the metaphor that's being used here i mean, with this ransom captive idea is an idea that well in our modern age we're not familiar with okay that we are taken captive and put into debtor's prison De- debtor's prison you know was abolished long long ago okay Because the question obviously comes up, if you're thrown into debtor's prison, how is somebody supposed to pay the redemption price for you? How are you supposed to pay the redemption price for yourself if you can't even work because you're in jail? Right. Okay. So here's the deal. At this point, Tony Jones, he's just throwing out ideas. And, you know, well, here's one idea. Here's another idea. Here's another idea. Some concepts regarding understanding how to properly uh, how to properly understand what jesus was accomplishing on the cross some have more merit than others some are well screwy some are misguided some have the metaphors wrong and some are good Okay, And there's several very good pictures that Jesus gives us of the atonement in his word. And so if we're going to talk about ransom captive, we need to talk about it on the Bible's terms. But then again, Tony Jones isn't beginning by looking at the biblical texts. He's deconstructing the idea so that he can move aside what's been historically taught and assert his own concept. Here's just a little bit more of Tony Jones.
2: A very similar and related theory understanding of the atonement is called Christus Victor. That's Latin for Christ the Victor.
1: And notice he's pitching this as if you know somehow these theories are mutually exclusive. Okay, Christ the Victor language is is biblical. In fact, go back to the sermon reviews that we did for Easter week to Jeremy Rohde's sermon. Entitled Christus Victor. He keys in on the biblical language regarding Christus Victor and proclaims that in his Easter sermon, okay? Which is perfectly biblical to do. But it's not as if these concepts are in and of themselves mutually exclusive, right? In, in fact, Jeremy Rody believes in the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And yet on an Easter Sunday sermon, he preached Christus Victor,
2: which similarly, although it doesn't have kind of the, the same negotiated versions, but the same idea holds sway. And that is because of what happened, because of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, the devil becomes the ruler. He's the king. Actually, it would be
1: slave master, and um, in the debtor's prison metaphor, the payment isn't made to the devil then. (laughs) The devil hangs on until the payment is made back to the king. Very important distinction.
2: Of humanity and of creation. And he expresses his kingship over humanity with death. Right? You've heard this. The wages of sin is death. That's the penalty.
1: Yeah, but it's not exacted by Satan. That's the penalty exacted by God. So already we got a problem here. It's like, okay, Dr. Jones, uh, right? It's if You're a Princeton uh, PhD, right? I expect better scholarship from Princeton PhDs. Anyway, we're going to pause it right there. And what we'll do is in our next segment, we'll listen to the next segment and take a look at what he's doing here but um I've read his book and uh, it's clear he's up to well uh no good yeah it in fact it's this is not only is it bad scholarship um I'll point out in in a segment coming up that his scholarship is contradicted by another well-known Princeton theologian but I'll get to that when the time comes. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side. It'll be, it'll be a little bit different. I'm going to explain why this sermon is being preached as opposed to just critiquing it. We'll be right back.
2: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... (laughs)
0: You're listening to Byron Christian Radio.
1: the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via north point church uh their head campus is in uh, springfield missouri but keep in mind they're one church three locations that would include springfield east sunshine and nixa <laughs> you just listen to these pastors they're always talking about the multi-site thing now, the sermon is not preached by Tommy Sparger. In fact, as I said in the uh, first hour, this sermon is actually preached by the, pa- uh, the pastor who is the brother of Buddy Crameens. His name is John Crameens. Uh, Buddy Crameens, we've reviewed him in the past. I think he's got a uh, church out there in, on the East Coast near New York City, if not in New York City itself. Now, the name of the sermon is Threads. That's the name of the sermon series. So this is the third in this series. It's about Nehemiah. And um, the, I think this is um, Threads 3 is, is the name of the sermon. Now, here's the deal. The seeker-driven guys have hijacked this story to somehow turn it into a leadership fable. It's not what Nehemiah is about, but there is a reason why, okay? And I'll get to it as the uh, sermon unfolds. So let me uh, let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is John Cremines, uh, pa- pa- pastor there at uh, at North Point in Springfield, Missouri. He's one of the associate pastors preaching, standing in for uh, Tommy Sparger, and he's the bu- brother of Buddy Cremines. And his sermon entitled "Threads." Here we go.
3: Well, we want to welcome all of you to week three of our series, Threads, and specifically for those of you that are watching online, for those of you that are watching on TV, East Sunshine, our Nixa campus, and of course, our Norton campus. And what we want to talk today to you about is this idea that God has designed all of us to make a difference. And we're talking about the. Okay, now, God has designed all
1: of us to make a difference you are going to look long and hard and fruitlessly in scripture to find any passage that says this okay this is not a christian doctrine this is this is not something that is derived using sound biblical hermeneutics instead here's what's going on okay the seeker driven church model is built off of a concept okay it's a philosophical concept it's not one that is built off of what the bible says instead at its core what's going on in the seeker driven movement is that this is reflecting the critique and the criticism of the of the church uh that was offered by soren kierkegaard and then was later picked up by peter drucker peter drucker Didn't care about theology or sound doctrine, and he was not interested in churches that were passing along a particular doctrinal position or theology or anything like that. Instead, in fact, he called the churches that he was trying to create. He called them pastoral churches. Okay, and a pastoral churches a pastoral church is a church that has as a mission vision statement to make a difference in the community that you live in. And so the idea is is that Drucker said that he's not interested in theology and doctrine he's in in he's interested in religion, and so he was looking for churches that would have well kind of a social community focus to them that their existence was not to pass on theology but their existence was to meet the needs of the community in which they were planted, okay Completely different focus. It wasn't to go and make disciples, instead, it was to go and meet needs. His mission for the church is completely different. Now, the folks there at North Point have bought into the Drucker model hook, line, and sinker. They are really what I would consider one of the premier examples of a Drucker ecclesiastical model type church. And so they're not interested in the theology? Yeah, not so much making a difference in the world. Yes, and see all of that's part of their goal. Okay? Cuz the seeker-driven churches are in it, you can say that one of the things that they're really doing is trying to transform society, okay? And that you know from you know kind of an individualistic point of view uh you know to one of community. This is a big Part of their agenda. So if a church is going to be, well, an organization that is, well, socially responsible, they have to exist not for Christians. They have to exist for the community that they're in. And so this is the standard text that's ripped out of context in order to plant into people's minds and reinforce this idea. Our church exists to meet the needs of our community. Okay, But that's not what the Bible teaches. So the only way that they can reinforce this perennial, constant beating of the drum of this particular message is to create the illusion that this is what the Bible teaches. One of the standard texts that they use to create this uh, perception that this is what the Bible is teaching, that all of us exist to make a difference in the world, that this church exists to meet the social needs of our community— um, they have to rip Nehemiah out of context and make it say something it doesn't say. So no, in fact, if you were to go and just go and get a good classic commentary on the book of Nehemiah written any time prior to the year 1980 by a good conservative theologian, they would not tell you Nehemiah is the is the book of the Bible. That teaches us how to make a difference in the world, and that Nehemiah. The focus of Nehemiah is on leadership. There's no, there's no biblical scholar prior to 1980 who would even say anything remotely close to this. Why? Because that's not what Nehemiah teaches.
3: Leaders in the Bible, leaders, and what we notice about leaders when we read stories about them are that things bother leaders. Things bother them. I remember for me, I grew up in church, and it was kind of insulated. I kind of grew up in the church bubble. It worked for me. I didn't know anything else. But one thing I noticed is, I graduated from college and and got out into the real world and and made friendships, more friendships outside of church, and and I would begin to talk to my friends more about my faith or bring them to church. I I noticed something. I, I noticed that there was this disconnect. I noticed all of a sudden I began to see the things that we did at church through different eyes. I noticed that we had kind of our own particular language, that that we had kind of our own handshakes, we had our own music. And, and what I began to see was that my friends would check out, that they wouldn't connect. And it just seemed like to me that something was broken.
1: That, that... Yeah, because my unbelieving friends didn't understand the unique things that we did as Christians. I mean, you know, come together, and we would read the Bible, and as a result of it, we would understand theological terms, and we would sing hymns that confessed the great teachings of the Scriptures. And so because the church was out of step with unbelievers' expectations, that means that something's wrong and you, you see, that, see, this is all part of the way the story gets told. Something was wrong. If we're really to be a church to make a difference in the world... We need to stop doing this because we exist to serve the community and make a difference in the world. So we got to get rid of this unique Bible language and, and Christian way we talk to each other, and not have these hymns and songs that 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 my friends, my unsaved friends,
3: are embarrassed by. You see how this is going? Like surely Jesus meant His church to be a group that connected to those who needed to experience him more. And I noticed where leaders, they'd be putting up and erecting walls. And all I could help but think was, man, shouldn't we be building bridges here and not putting up walls? I mean, this is important stuff, right? I mean, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the hope of the world. And to this day, to this day, it still bothers me. It still bothers me. And if I see this insider kind of business, it's like this spiritual gag reflex inside me just starts and I can't take it. That's why I love working at North Point Church. I love being part of a family of faith that's about building bridges. To people you know all okay so notice it
1: 's sick dysfunctional, and wrong if you do church the way the chur- church has done church for the last two thousand years
3: all of us all of us have areas that bother us don 't we and you think about it you can 't drive across town now without seeing and being reminded about the the homeless issue in our city about poverty about child abuse about human trafficking, about cancer, about leadership that's corrupt, or religion that's distorted, or broken relationships, and we could go on. Now notice,
1: none of that has to do with sinners who need to be brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That was basically a litany of societal problems. And yes, Christians ought to be involved in solving those problems. But not during church. The, the, when the church comes together, we have sacred business to do. To hear and learn God's word. To take the Lord's Supper. Things of that nature. To baptize and to teach. Um, so it, notice, that there's a problem here. The, the world has got all these problems. Of course they do. The world is full of people who are dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. All of the distortions that we're seeing taking place in society, those are the consequences and the result of our sinful rebellion against God. So apparently the, the church is wrong by focusing on making disciples, teaching God's word. We need to get busy solving social problems.
3: And on and on about things that bother us, but here's the connection that I want to make with you today, and those areas that bother us and our spiritual life, our spiritual journey, and it's really the main idea of this talk, and here it is, that God wants us to see something undone in order that it can be redone. God wants us to see something that's undone in order so that it can be redone.
1: Mm, okay, that's um, found in what passage of Scripture, John? You're making a claim for God. Okay, You're saying God wants us to see something undone before we can see it redone or something like that. And you're, you're attributing this
3: concept to God. You better have a clear passage that teaches this. We all want to make a difference. It's put inside of us. You want to make a difference. You want to matter. I want to matter. God wants us to make a difference. He's created. Yeah, just because you keep saying it doesn't mean it's true.
1: Where in the Bible does it say that God put into us this desire to make a difference? You know, you repeat a lie over and over again, people might believe it's the truth, but on this program, I want to see the evidence. Where does the Bible teach this?
3: ...us to make a difference. And God wants our hearts to align with his heart so that he can use us to make a difference. A news flash for all of us is this.
1: Again, where does the Bible say that God wants us to align our hearts so that we can make a difference? Where does it say this?
3: That God already knows what's broken? Sometimes we see things we're like, "God, don't you see this? Don't you see this?" And I could just think of God saying, "Yeah, I'm just glad you finally do, because I want you to see something undone so that I can help use you to make it redone, the story of the Bible the heart of god has always been to fix that which is broken and in terms of humanity that's why jesus came to this planet it- um
1: okay um to fix that which is broken that's the story of the bible hmm yeah um you do know that the way jesus fixes things is by Killing them and then raising them from the dead, right? You do know that the world we live in is going to be destroyed, and God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So you know, I I'm I'm just throwing a flag here, going, yeah, I'm not sure if you know God fixing things is exactly the right message that uh, the scriptures teach. It's uh, quite more catastrophic than that. It's death and resurrection.
3: There's a great example, there's a great example of this taking place in the Old Testament. And it's a character named Nehemiah. And I want to talk to you today about this story of Nehemiah. So I'm going to try to cram his story into a very short and tight window. But stay with me on this because there's so much, there's so much that applies from Nehemiah's life to ours. To give you some background of where Nehemiah fits into the Old Testament... If you go back to Moses, Moses, we're we're talking about 1300 BC, give or take 100 years or so. And Moses comes onto the scene and Moses leads Israel out away from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery. And he leads them to the promised land. And so Israel then occupies the promised land. And then after they occupy the promised land, Israel says, hey, hey God, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. So the people's choice, not necessarily God's choice, becomes a king, and his name is Saul. Saul Saul's the very first king. Then the second king to come on was more of God's choice, And, and Pastor Tommy talked about him last week, and that's David. And during David's reign is when you see Israel really kind of rise to its peak. David was followed by Solomon, his son, and that's when you see Israel begin to take kind of this... 700 years slow decline to be followed up by the babylonian empire rising to prominence the babylonians came in they overthrew israel they took over their nation and their way of defeating their foe of making sure they didn't come back is then they would take most of their people that they had conquered and then they would relocate them throughout their empire take them away from their homes So about a hundred years after that took place, then comes the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire comes and overtakes the Babylonian Empire, and we're almost to the end of your history lesson. They overtake the Babylonian Empire, and that's good news for Israel. Here's why. It's good news for them because they allow many of those Israelites to begin to start returning home. And that brings us to the star of our story, Nehemiah. Nehemiah lives in the capital of Persia It's a town called Susa And Nehemiah uh, has this very, very interesting job Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king Basically what his job is Is to taste all the wine Before the king does Some of you right now are like Where can I get that job? Is that on jobs.com? I want that job. And that might sound like a good job to you, but the reason that he was tasting the wine wasn't to make sure it was the best wine, wasn't to make sure it was the right kind, whether it was dry enough or what the king wanted. He was tasting the wine to see if there was poison in it. So basically, Nehemiah would do one of these, and everybody would kind of watch him. And if that was me, wouldn't you just one time want to go, Oh! Oh! Oh, oh, just kidding. It's all good. But Nehemiah would taste the wine every day. And, and because he had this job, he had access to the king, he had influence with the king. This was a big job. Some historians even suggest that the cupbearer in the Persian Empire could have been the number two position, the number two position in that entire empire. So life is pretty much good for him. You know, with the exception, I mean, for a cupbearer, you never had to ask him at the end of the day. Did you have a good day? Because pretty much if he was alive, it was a good day, right? So, But he has a good job. Life is going good. He has influence. And then his brother is allowed to travel back to Jerusalem. He travels to Jerusalem. And then he heads about 800 miles back to the city of Susa. 800 miles. About a 12-hour drive for most of you. Probably 10 and a half For me. Um, and so he drives back, or he doesn't drive. He goes back, uh, and visits his brother. And he brings this news. He comes back and he talks to him about the city of Jerusalem. Now, mind you, this has been a hundred years. You know, they've been a conquered people for over a century. But he comes back and he says that, hey, now that the people are coming back, he's like, Nehemiah, you, you just have to see this. It's horrible. It's horrible. Man, the city, it's just...
1: Yes. Why were they a conquered people? Because God was punishing Israel for their idolatry. And yet God promised to bring them back through the prophet Jeremiah. Before they were taken into slavery, God had promised that they would be brought back. By the way, what else was awful about this? Okay. Think about what went on there, okay? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. The sacrificial system had been brought to an end. There was no day of atonement. I mean, this is a big deal. Not only was were the walls taken down, but the uh, well, the temple was torn down too and needed to be rebuilt and the sacrifices again be brought back into play. I mean, this is, a, this is really a story of God's destruction, if you would, of not just the wall, but the church punishing them for their idolatry. And so you have to read Nehemiah and Ezra together to get the full picture of what's going on there. This is not pertaining to us, you know, that Nehemiah was upset. You know, he looked out into Jerusalem and he saw that there were homeless children it was much deeper than
3: that the walls are torn down it's rubble morale is in shambles I mean it's just awful it's a terrible terrible place and so Nehemiah Nehemiah comes to this point he comes to this point in his life where he has to make a decision he has to make a decision and that's really What I want to talk to you today about is he had a choice whether he was going to be, whether he would make a difference or whether
1: he would not. And he decided... Okay, it's important to note, John Cremines here is not reading from Nehemiah. He's in control of how the story is being told. Because if he were reading from Nehemiah... He wouldn't be able to make the points he's making. He's recrafting the point of Nehemiah by being in control of how the story is told rather than letting the Bible tell us the story.
3: I ...to make a difference. I mean, this would make a great movie, a great story for us. So what I'd like to do with the time we have left is just look at this story and give you four different characteristics, four characteristics we can see from the life of Nehemiah, uh, that are characteristics of people who make a difference. Specifically, the first one is this, that difference makers identify pain. (sighs) So difference makers identify pain.
1: And we know this from the book of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is all about difference makers.
3: No, it's not. Difference makers identify pain. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says this, They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. There's a lot of attention here given to the wall, given to the wall. And I know for us in our culture, we're probably, it's hard for us to relate to this. Because, okay, it's a wall. What's the big deal? Well, for them, a wall symbolized so much. It symbolized so much. It symbolized their protection. It symbolized kind of their significance. They they, they relied on it for so many different things to give you kind of a modern-day example for us here in America of something that, that maybe f- would feel like... Uh, by the way,
1: back in those days, the wall didn't symbolize protection. It was their protection.
3: Us like it did to them. On September 10th, I lived in just outside of Philadelphia. and Okay, before he tells
1: the story, let's spend a little bit of time in the book of Nehemiah in context, so we can see what's going on here. Because he claims it's all about divining out of it applications just to see how different makers behave. Is that really what the story is about? Nehemiah Chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now what happened in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire." As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He wants news. What, how's Jerusalem? Keep in mind, Nehemiah has been in exile his entire life. Okay? He understands all too well that the reason he's in exile is because of the idolatry of the Jews prior to the exile. Okay, So I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house, we have sinned. Notice the confession of sins. Hmm. Why isn't that that these people who turn this into a story about difference makers omit that piece? Hmm. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Here he is declaring that God was just in punishing them and sending them to exile. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Er Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your faith sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Well, Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I, might re- that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, The queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let the letter be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that I may let, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I should occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Notice he gives credit to God. God is the one who turned the heart of the king, Artaxerxes, so that Nehemiah can find favor in his eyes. And that the request that he gave wouldn't be denied, but what he requested would be granted. And he gives credit to God. When I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, now the king had sent me, uh, sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanbalat the Haranite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days, and then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate of, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire, and I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass, and then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, and the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were who, who were to do the work. So then I said to them, "'You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision.'" And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem uh, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. Yeah, so, yeah, the notice that Sanballat and Tobiah, they're not Jewish. They were people who came in, you know, people of opportunity, if you would, taking advantage of the fact that the people of Israel had been taken into exile, and uh, you know, made Jerusalem their dwelling place, and they were jeering the people of Israel. They didn't want Israel to be reestablished. Why? Well, the when you think of the Ammonites and others like them, they were judged by God, and many you know when when Israel has an Israeli king in power. The Ammonites are people who they found themselves at war with and out of power in, in Israel. They didn't want to go back to that. They didn't want any of that to happen. They Their their lot was... They did very well uh, while the uh, Jews were in exile. Then Elashiab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the Sheep Gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hanasa built the fish gate. They laid its beams, set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, Repaired, and next to them Meshulam the son of Barakiah the son of Meshesabbel repaired the next, uh, the next, and took them Zadok the son of Baana repaired, and next to them Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. So it goes on and tells the story. And when you read the story of Ezra, you find that the the really important thing happened too. That was the reestablishing and the rebuilding of the foundations of the temple so that the sacrifices for sins could be brought back in. This is a story about the church, the people of God, those set apart, those repentant sinners forgiven by God and him strengthening them to the tasks that he's called them to even in the face of extreme opposition. If we're to be like Nehemiah, it's not about going and making a difference in the world and having pain for suffering out there. It's about being a penitent sinner, going out, and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins in the face of opposition and persecution that comes from doing that. The persecution that they faced wasn't just persecution because they were making a difference in the world. The persecution they faced was because they were servants of the Most High God, and their work was the reestablishing of His people, His church. Right? We continue.
3: A friend of mine gave me tickets To go to the Yankees and Boston Red Sox. Not a big American League guy, but who's going to pass that up? So so jumped in the car with some friends of mine. We headed up through New Jersey down the Garden State Parkway. And as you're coming into New York City, you can see from such a, a far way off, the skyline. And the very first things, of course, that you would see back then would be the World Trade Towers. And I can remember just seeing them and looking at them and just thinking... Man, that's so awesome. I mean, it was symbolic. It was symbolic. It was something that everybody associated with New York City. And it isn't so much that you, you knew what it symbolizes when you had it, as it did the next morning when we all woke up. And literally, for, life, for all of us, life has changed. For our country, life has changed. And that's how it was for the nation of Israel. That's how it was for Nehemiah as he thought about the fact that the walls had been turned down. He's grown up knowing it's in bad shape. But then he gets this first-hand report from ground zero in Jerusalem and it cuts him. It cuts him to his core. God God wants us. He wants us to be bothered by certain things. He, He wants us to see them for what they could be. He wants us to see them for what they should be in spite of what is it's how he's wired us so let me ask you this question what bothers you
1: pastors like you who twist god's word and teach false doctrine and don't do what god what christ has commanded the church to be doing and pastors to be doing to preach the word instead you scratch itching ears, and you change the biblical message and turn it into something that it's not. That's what really bothers me.
3: What is it that bothers you? Now, if everything bothers you, you're just cranky. But for all of us, there should be things, there should be inadequacies There should be things that bother us, that just, we see them and we... This is not the point of Nehemiah, by the way. We just know intrinsically that it should and it could be different. And I think of Pastor Tommy. He's one of my heroes. He's a great friend, great leader, a great boss, but he's a better pastor even. And I think of impact. I think of impact and I think about attacking the four global giants of attacking the four global giants really
1: hmm is that what christ church is called to do attack the four global giants i mean it's as if you guys are using the church to create a new society or something that, that you know it's like you know some brand new new world order as if the church is somehow going to you know bring this new world
3: order about weird disease and poverty and illiteracy and spiritual emptiness and you know what folks that springfield missouri today it is a different place because pastor tommy saw something that needed to change and he did something about it he did something about it and next month check this out Next month, North Point Church will give more blood than any other organization in the history of the Ozarks. Why? Because someone saw something that needed to change. He saw that... The-
1: Yay, wow. So the the, the the greatest amount of church blood will be given. Yeah, and my question is... um. Based on what I've heard from Tommy Sparger's mishandling of God's Word and is basically affirming of Rob Bell's uh, concept in the book Love Wins, um, yeah, you may be inspired to make a difference in the world and give blood there at uh, North Point. But I wonder if you're going to hear the story of Christ shed blood on the cross correctly at North Point.
5: There were
3: organizations already working in Springfield to, to work on things that were undone. And instead of recreating those organizations, it just made sense for us to come alongside and partner with them. And things are happening. And now you can... Yeah, because, you know, giving blood is the same thing as rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. you can make a difference. And I can make a difference on Second Saturdays. Why? Because one person saw the pain and decided to do something about it. Difference makers, they identify pain. The second thing is the difference makers talk to God. Yeah, and did you notice that confession of sins when Nehemiah talked to God? In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, When I heard this, talking about Nehemiah, he said, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Man, sometimes we read the Bible like a fairy
1: tale. Or worse, you cut important parts out. Why don't you read that prayer, and we can talk about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Because what did Nehemiah do? He confessed his sinfulness no I don't yes you do and he confessed that God was just in punishing Israel for their idolatry because
3: as I'm reading this I just thought to myself man when's the last time I heard something that dropped me to my knees men when's the last time you heard something that you just had to go sit down and the tears came Man, it takes a lot for something like that to happen And you need to understand that Nehemiah, man, he's a man's man. He's the kind of guy that you want on your team. I mean, think about it. Every single day that Nehemiah goes to work, he plays Russian roulette. Every single day could be his last day. That's what he does for a living. I mean, we might get fired. He might die. And he hears this. And it cuts him to his core, and the tears come. Last week... We talked about David and how David was a man of reflection and how he... You notice, again, he didn't actually read the text.
1: And by him being in control of the story, not God's word, I mean, it basically makes it sound like, you know, Nehemiah is a big social justice guy. This is all about making a difference, in, you know, in, in society and in your local community. And, you know, he saw a problem in the community and it dropped into his knees and he just knew he needed to make a difference. And yet when he dropped to his knees he confessed that God was just in punishing the people of Israel for their idolatry and he confessed his own sin saying that he was guilty of sinning against God and prayed for God's mercy You see when you compare the subject of Nehemiah's prayer to what while John here is saying there's a big disconnect Makes you wonder, why did he take that part out? Why is he not preaching about that? Because it doesn't fit the template. The seeker driven template is we got to turn the churches into churches that serve the community. They don't exist for believers, they exist to make a difference in the world.
3: Processed his emotions with God. I mean, Nehemiah, he begins that process with God. His pain wasn't going to go away. This just wasn't a bad day or a tough week. In fact, if you read the first chapter of Nehemiah, most of this chapter is just this fabulous prayer of agonizing that Nehemiah has this conversation with God. He pours out his heart about what's going on in his hometown, in his home country. And here's what makes this story or this particular part of this story such a big deal. One of the ways that you can divide people, if we were to divide people here uh, in this crowd, we could divide you into two groups. We could be activists or contemplatives. Activists or contemplatives. And let me kind of just explain to you what the difference is. If you're an activist, you... Really, yeah, please. And can you show me this from the Bible? Thrive on movement, decisiveness confrontation you want to do something right now uh for an activist man for you prayer is often difficult i'm an activist because if i don't do something right now i'll just forget i'll forget so i better do it right now if i think about it too long my mind will change contemplatives man they often they like to pray it comes naturally to them you guys love reflection you're, you're apt to be thoughtful and patient Man, what's that like? Some of you tend to be contemplatives. You you like to think about things. I want to be more like you. For those of you that are activists, man, you like to run really hard. When an activist says, I'll call you, they mean they'll call you right now. They'll call you today. They'll call you before they get home. When a contemplative says they call you, they mean before I die. Before I die, I'll call you. Okay? Well, Nehemiah was an activist. If you follow his story, man, he just, he made things happen. He made things happen. So for him to put it in park and to stop for four months and talk this thing over to God was so outside of his character. Um,
1: weird. Um, so you've come up with a psychological profile for Nehemiah that is not actually given to us in Scripture. He'd been in exile his whole life. Um so for him to be in park for four months, um, he was in park for all of his life. In verse eleven And by the way, nowhere in the Bible does it say about Nehemiah that you know he was an activist. This guy is doing psychoanalyzing on uh Nehemiah. My question is, where did he get the uh well, the street creds, the credentials to say with any certainty that he can actually psychologically analyze Nehemiah so that he can say with certainty that he was an activist.
3: 11, chapter 1, as he's continuing this prayer, he says, Oh Lord, please, please hear my prayer. You ever feel like that? You're not just praying, you're saying, God, this time can you listen? God, this time the stakes are high. God, this time I need you to come through. I, I need to know I need to know, God, that you're going to hear me. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. You you skipped over the
1: part where he confessed his sins. Weird. It's like he doesn't know what to do with it.
3: Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me
1: well, not only that he added to this uh, this prayer he missed he skipped over the whole confession of sins part hmm weird
3: what a statement of faith what a statement of faith to know that god could change the heart of a pagan king that god could move in a way and, ch-
1: and yet that's promised to the people of israel he wasn't doing this just because he was guessing The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that.
3: Change that king's heart and that king not even know. Nehemiah just shows some incredible faith here. So Nehemiah goes to the king and he takes this huge risk. He he could lose his job. Really, he could even lose his life. He's trying to reverse something that the king had initiated himself. And the Bible says that the king shows him favor God answers his heart he changes he changes the heart of the king and not only does he give him favor but the king puts him over the entire region of Jerusalem it's basically like a governor and he gives him money and he gives him supplies so Nehemiah heads back to Jerusalem with the full backing of the Persian Empire leads us to the third key of people who make a difference Difference makers take action. Difference makers take action. Nehemiah goes out. He gets to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that he kind of takes a full day. A day and a night. And he just walks around the city. And he talks to people and he asks them questions. He's trying to gauge morale. He looks at the wall. And as he does it, it just is real simple to him that the very first thing, the most important thing that they have to do, it starts with the wall. It all starts with the wall. Before we build our houses, before we do any of those things, we've got to rebuild this wall. So he pulls the leaders of Jerusalem together and he says this, says to them this in chapter 2 verse 17. You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Man, a difference maker doesn't just talk about what's wrong. They do something about it. Most of us, when we hear about a mess somewhere in the world, when we hear that the walls are down, we'll just say, hey, that's really too bad, isn't it? Somebody will do something about it. And sometimes, I don't know about you. So when there's a mess in the world, that's the same
1: thing as the walls of Jerusalem being down.
5: Hmm. It's
1: the same thing as the people of Israel being carried off into exile because of their idolatry.
3: But I'm tempted to give myself way too much credit because, you know what? I I like to think I have a good heart. I'd like to think I have empathetic feelings about some things. Well, Jesus said that out of the heart comes all kinds of
1: sinful wickedness, you know, murder, adultery, theft, you know, stuff like that. It all comes out of the heart.
3: I mean, sometimes I'm like, you know, somebody ought to feed those hungry people. Somebody ought to educate those poor children. Somebody ought to reach out to the people who don't know about God. Seriously, really, I'm against hunger. I'm against poverty. I'm against spiritual emptiness. Sometimes spiritual emptiness.
1: Hmm. Yeah. That's a weird way to talk about somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins and under the wrath of God and liable to his judgment. No, they're just suffering from spiritual emptiness.
3: Sometimes Christians, including myself, we have this this tendency to identify pain and even talk to God about it, but then never take action. Difference makers. They take action. They get involved. Are you taking action? Are you involved in a cause? Now, I think of the hundreds. Are you involved in a
1: cause? Apparently, you're just not a Christian if you're not.
3: Of North Pointers, man who volunteer every single day weekend you know i think about the people in our community our educators our teachers our coaches our public servants those who work in nonprofits and other professions for many of you you're here today and your job just it's not just a job to you it's a calling you get a paycheck sure but for you you know god designed you to make a difference and that's why you do what you do i was thinking about our staff And our staff's just been having lots of babies lately. I I think they have way too much time on their hands, is what I'm wondering. Uh, Lots of baby. I mean, they take the mission of growing North Point Church seriously. I mean, they're growing it one life at a time the best they can. And and lately, I mean, just this past month, we've had two babies born. I know of at least two ladies who are going to be honest, who are pregnant on our staff right now. So I'm just saying, be careful drinking the water on the way out. Uh, But I don't know about you, but working with pregnant ladies, what? It's just a unique experience. It's a blessing. It's favor from God. And the ladies in our office, and here's the crazy part, is this, it used to be just the pregnant ladies. But now, like, all the ladies have this, and I don't think that's really fair, but they have this thing, that, this sheet that they put over their desk. Don't do a close-up on this, all right, guys? Don't. They put this over their desk, and they kind of move this scale here based on how they're feeling. And let me just tell you that it starts out up here at the top, and that says, safe zone. That means it's okay to come up and ask them if you'd like them to do something, and let me just say that it goes downhill from faking it to tread lightly to emotional to, oh, I can't read that word, to don't freaking talk to me right now. So that's what, it, that's what we have to work with here. That's what we have to work with. But one of our ladies brought her baby in this past week. And when I think about taking action and when I think about making a difference and when I think about finding a cause sometimes we can just hold these big, huge projects up here, can't we? But I was heading out to lunch, and I saw her getting out of her car. And I have five kids, so I made a vow a long time ago, if I see a lady carrying one of those car seats, I'm just going to stop, because they're heavy. They're heavy, and I see guys just walking next to them like, no big deal. You know, and their little wife's carrying this thing that weighs 100 pounds. So I stopped, and, and I picked it up, and I carried it inside. And, and well, what a beautiful little girl. And I looked at that baby, and I had two thoughts. The first thought I had was, God, I'm so glad my baby, Grace, is 13 years old. That's the first thought I had. But my second thought I had was, you know what, God? Rachel is going to make such a big difference in the life of that little girl. Her her life's going to be just different. This beautiful baby that's undone, she's going to invest in her her life in her. And years from now, she'll reap the rewards of that. Difference makers take action. They're not just huge causes. Some of them are sitting right next to you right now. Some of them will get in your car when you drive home. They're your kids. They're your family. They're, They're the most precious commodity that God has given you. The Bible says in verse 18, it says, So they began the good work. And that leads us to the final one, and that's this. Difference makers remain persistent. Difference makers remain persistent. I I love this quote, that quitting is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And some of you, you're here today because you needed to hear this part of the talk. So listen up. Some of you, you have had the pain... You've seen the cause. You've identified it, man. It's cut you to your core. And you've taken it to God and you've processed it with Him and you've poured out your heart and then you've taken action and you've made a difference and you've invested your life. But as this happens to so many of us, in fact, what happens to anybody that tries to make a difference, life becomes difficult, it becomes complex, the problem, the opposition comes and the passion begins to wane. And so God has brought you here today because you needed to hear this, that you've done the first three things, but that God wants you to finish strong. God wants you to keep going. God wants you to re-up. God wants you to go back and revisit that pain that, that inspired and motivated you to do what it is that you're doing and to keep doing it. Nehemiah begins to have opposition seven times. Seven times in Nehemiah, we have this formula where they begin to advance. They, they're building the wall, then opposition comes, and then there's trouble just over and over. But I think, and I think about this for me. Sometimes I think, man, when I'm doing something that's right, when I'm doing something that's a good cause, that life should be easy. That life should be easy. That the wind should be at my back, right? Right? But it's not the way it is. It's not the way it is. Life is a battle. So Nehemiah and those with him, they've made it halfway rebuilding the wall and then bam, there's trouble. There's trouble. In Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible says, Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Man, just a few minutes ago, they're doing great. They're doing great. But the opposition comes. Again, he's not even
1: telling the story. He's omitting most of the story so that he can tell the story the way he wants to tell it. Because when you read it in
3: context,
1: this what's written in Nehemiah doesn't tell this story.
3: Opposition comes. The team gets discouraged. People start to complain. People start to talk about quitting. And then Nehemiah. And then Nehemiah
1: stands up on a soapbox and he says, we need to change the world. Don't you want to make a difference?
3: Don't give up. Never surrender. Nehemiah goes William Wallace on him. Before there was William Wallace and Braveheart, here it is in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah reminds them that God is with them. He reminds them that their cause is worth fighting for, that you're fighting for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your homes. And he casts vision and the people rally. And he casts
1: vision. Wow. That's unbelievable.
3: And they continue forward, and the Bible says they get right to the end where the last thing they have to do is to hang the gates of the city. And at that point, man, the opposition makes its final push at Nehemiah. And some guy named Sandballet sends a message. To Nehemiah, He knows if he can just get him off the wall, off the task, and he can get him away from his people, that then he can kill him and that he can put this project, uh, that he can kill this whole project as well. And then he sends a message to Nehemiah, and I love this reply. It's laser focused. Ne- Nehemiah says, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down? God, this cause is too big. Why should it stop so that I can have a meeting? Why should it stop so that we can go sideways on something else? No, 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 no. No, you have
1: not. This is a classic proof text that seeker-driven guys do use to say, we're not going to address any haters or critics out there. We've got too important of work to do. Why should we come down? and talk with these guys you know, who are saying that what we're doing is not biblical. Our work is from God. We cast vision, so we don't need to talk to them.
3: Experience the pain that I have. You have not talked to God and processed this thing with God the way that I have. You haven't taken out and invested so much in action. We're 95% of the way. There's no way. There's no way I'm going to stop right now. And as a great leader is, he keeps... He keeps his focus, he keeps his focus. There's so many things that fight for us and our focus. So as we wrap up today, what's the story of Nehemiah mean for you? And I want to close with this verse. It says in chapter six and verse 15 of Nehemiah.
1: So the- yeah, I mean, ser- what does the story of Nehemiah mean to you? Yeah, wow. not what does it mean, but what does it mean to you? wall
3: was finished. Just 52 days after we had begun. It had been in ruins for over 130 years and in just 52 short days. One person, one person who saw something undone and saw and knew that it could be redone made a difference made a difference. For you, I think you just need to know this, that in 52 days, man, it's possible to make a difference. That if you identify in the pain, if you talk to God, if you take action and you remain persistent, that whatever is impossible in your life can become possible. Maybe for you it's a, it's a habit or a debt, or, or maybe it's something in the world around you, Maybe it's a relationship, your marriage, your family. Maybe it's your relationship with God. Something undone that needs to be redone. And you've hit a wall and you've hit opposition. Just know this, that it's worth it. It's worth the work. It's worth being rebuilt. For all of us, imagine if every one of us leaned into the areas in our world that need rebuilding. Imagine if we began to rebuild those relationships that need mending. Imagine if you began to rebuild those spiritual practices that you've gotten away from. Imagine if you took action on the injustice that you see in the world that keeps you awake at night. Yeah, it'd be just like you rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Imagine if every one of us would begin to rebuild the story of Nehemiah. It reminds us that our cause
1: is worth... So Nehemiah is now the new Aesop's fables of uh, social justice biblical passages.
3: ...fighting for, that we fight for our brothers, that we fight for our sisters, our sons, our daughters, that God wants us to represent Him to others, to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. That God is the... that God wants you to make a difference in your life, to come alongside one of those causes. Imagine if our hearts lined up with him, if we could begin to see things as he does, that we could be part of the process of rebuilding that which is broken. Let's pray.
1: So there you go. Again, what's the point of all this? It's because the seeker-driven model has as a, a completely different paradigm. The church exists to serve the needs of the community, not to build people up in doctrine and theology. So this was a pep talk to get people to get to work making a difference in their local community. By the way, everybody in that church already does impact their community. They impact their community by being good moms or good dads or good students or good employees. But see, in the seeker-driven model, that doesn't really amount to much. Serving your neighbor in vocation, mm, you can do better than that. you got to make a bigger difference. So you got to get out there and solve the social justice problems out there, the inequalities that exist in the community, so that the church becomes, well— a distribution center for blood or medicine or whatever, because it's not enough that you're serving your neighbor in your vocation. You've got to adjust the community inequities out there and get busy doing it un- Well, in your spare time. So what has God called you to rebuild is the point. But see, Nehemiah is not Aesop's fables. He allegorized this, and it doesn't teach... That we're supposed to go out there and find problems and then, you know, go out and come alongside and all that, any of that kind of stuff. This represents the new focus of the seeker-driven churches. And it's in line with Rick Warren's so-called peace plan. But you know what it does? It takes our focus off of Christ and his word and making disciples and teaching them everything that Christ has commanded, saying, you know? It's got them really busy making a difference in the world, rather than understanding what God has revealed in His Word and proclaiming the good news with clarity and passion. So now the good news is go make a difference, rather than Christ bled and died for your sins. The good news is our church, we donated blood, rather than Christ shed His blood on the cross. For your sins. Where was Christ in the sermon? He wasn't present. He didn't need to be there. I mean, you could have preached this to Mormons. You could have preached it to Roman Catholics. You could have preached it to a bunch of Unitarians. They all would have applauded you. But what was missing? The gospel, Jesus Christ, and sound doctrine. This was a hack job on God's word to make it say something that it doesn't. So, what'd you think? Well, I'd to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy, won by Jesus Christ, and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.